0: at Let It Roll Cast, and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes Mark Burford to discuss his book, Mahalia Jackson and the Black Gospel Field. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
1: It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Mark Burford, the author of Mahalia Jackson and the Black Gospel Field. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Nate. Yeah, and I just want to say, first up, for all my readers, especially those who don't consider themselves gospel fans or whatever, this book is the most let it roll book I have read in years. It covers everything, and in depth, it's got the Broader political context. It's got the life story. It's got some musical analysis. It's got the business analysis, both the live, uh, recording, TV, radio, publishing. It's got it all. So, Mark, hats off on a really, really great scholarly book on Mahalia Jackson. And so thank want to much. I appreciate it. Sure, and I want to get you. You start out pretty bold, I think, in the preface, and you say the most fundamental questions can be the most fruitful. And then you boil it down to why her? Why was Mahalia? And presumably the implication is that why was Mahalia Jackson the face of not just gospel, but I would almost argue African American music and maybe even African American culture for a period of the 1950s and 1960s? She was the face of a people in a way to... The mass American audience that watched CBS, that watched, that listened to Ed Sullivan on the radio, that watched him on TV on Sunday nights—is that am I am I misstating the question? And can you try to answer it for us?
2: No, I don't think you're mistaken at all. And I think it's it it continues in a lot of ways. I think it's very telling that, you know, one thing I I noticed and uh, doing research for the book that there have been at least seven musicals about Michael Jackson's life. Um there have been all kinds of tributes. There are two biopics that have come out within the last couple of years. So her life and career is something that not just African Americans but broader American culture c- continues to return to over and over again. Um and I think it's, you know, the contours of her life um as a um granddaughter of, of uh, enslaved African Americans who migrated to uh to from New Orleans to Chicago a kind of quintessential um American story um but I think for African Americans in particular um she has such cultural relevance I think it's the sound of her voice uh I think it's the time when her career kind of Uh, began um, in that kind of interwar and war period. Um, uh, I think it's what her recordings represented in terms of a kind of coming out for Black vernacular culture, a kind of gospel music, which tends to be under the radar screen. Um, And I think it's also her civil rights commitments uh, that she was her pride as an African-American and her Uh, Her um, willingness to kind of put her fame and celebrity, uh, put her thumb on the scale in terms of the civil rights movement, in terms of her uh, celebrity and artistic status. So I think there are a lot of reasons why she became the face of gospel, but also a kind of cultural icon for African Americans.
1: And that's very hard to argue with. And and you start the book out by focusing in on one moment when she was a guest on Ed Sullivan's Talk of the Town. And for those of us who are living in the 21st century and don't know, Ed Sullivan was a big deal. He's more than just the guy who introduced the Beatles. He was the host of the most popular television show in America for essentially 15 years, maybe even a little bit longer than that. But Ed Sullivan was somebody who... It wasn't just random that he picked Mahalia Jackson to feature on his show. He had an agenda. What was that agenda? Well, I
2: think Ed Sullivan, um, one thing that people don't know about him is that he was very purposeful in uh, programming African-Americans on his, on his show. Um, from his very first show, he would program um, popular artists. Um, so the fact that he had Mahalia Jackson on the show was was telling of his commitments. And African Americans recognized that. They, in fact, they they thought they. Um, in one uh, newspaper report, they said that. He kind of gave her too brief and too brusque an introduction, um, but that he had a little bit of uh, of, of credit because he had uh, had treated African Americans so well. So for that showcase, I mean, that was the most popular show in the United States, and that was really, I think, a coming out moment for Black gospel for Mahalia Jackson certainly, but it was an introduction in some ways of Black gospel to the American public at large.
1: And people hate when I do this, but I'm gonna read a block of text from your book at you um, because you, you say that the moment that she's appearing on Ed Sullivan raises um, a bounty of issues that help illuminate post-war gospel. And I wanna just run through them real quickly to give people an idea of the scope of your book, because your book really deals with every single one of these things and really well. First up, the production and circulation of gospel re- repertoire. The documentation of gospel music on record, gospel's various ensembles and performance approaches, how biblical scripture becomes gospel song, and how through performance this shared repertory becomes personal testimony. Also, the professional aspirations of gospel singers, the reception of gospel singing by African Americans beyond the context of the black church questions of race, representation, and mediation, and the salience of both collective protests and individual prestige in the Black freedom struggle, and not least, the place of U.S. popular culture within, not in opposition to the Black black gospel music field. So I just wanted to to run through that litany because you tackle all these issues and so well, but I'm going to ask you to tackle and unpack a shorter sentence because you sum up Mahalia Jackson, and in particular four things about her that I think readers need to understand. And that is this sentence, the 40 year old Jackson, this is at the time of the show, a Baptist born and bred, but Pentecostal friendly Chicago resident, originally from new Orleans. Unpack that recipe. What, what are the ingredients here that make Mahalia Jackson, the queen of gospel?
2: Well, I think what's, what's interesting about Jackson is that there's a lot of, um, uh, fluidity. In some ways, she's the kind of marrow of the bone of Black um, musical history for a lot of people that she represents a kind of um, a common, almost um, uh, a, a kind of uh, a, a core element of Black cultural identity. But what's interesting about her is that she constantly negotiated. Um, uh, uh, had a kind of fluidity in the way she negotiated various positions. So she always identified strongly as being from New Orleans and 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 uh, being a southerner in that sense. Um, and yet Chicago was her home and she it was her base uh, for the majority of her life. So I think negotiating that north south, uh, I wouldn't say divide, but certainly dichotomy. And and when she came to Chicago. She um, was under some pressure in some ways and criticism um, for bringing some of that kind of southern blue sensibility to kind of northern black mainline churches. She also uh, negotiated um, religiously in in New Orleans she was baptist and very much uh in the in the bosom of the baptist church but she also had a pentecostal um church down the street and the worship style of pentecostal holiness Uh, churches um, tends to be more ecstatic and exuberant. Um, They use instruments in the church. Um, So she was going to the Baptist church, but she was also kind of on the side going to this Pentecostal church. So I think her style of performance reflects um, her uh, um, just being Um, deeply immersed in the Baptist church, but also bringing those more uh, exuberant performance styles uh, to her music as well, too, which was at first criticized, but eventually um, became her bread and butter and she was embraced for it. I think also the thing that really fascinated me, too, is her her nimbleness in negotiating in Chicago, kind of being a, a church singer, um, throughout the week, but then also shuttling to, uh, to the the uh, downtown Chicago um, and showing up on the radio show and the TV show. So she really is working two different audiences, this kind of general kind of mainstream white audience, but also her Black church base. And I think the amount of labor that went into kind of making all of those negotiations can get lost with the kind of uh, the easy description of the queen of gospel music, because I think um, th- that involved a lot of negotiation on her part and was part of her mastery as an artist and a public figure. <laughs>
1: And I want to introduce our first song, but first I want to apologize. Uh, Steph, let me know that I was shushing my dog, and I thought I had my mic muted, and that sounded like I was shushing you. So that was anything but my intention. I was trying to prevent my dog from drowning us all out with a barrage of barking. That's but the this... amen
2: corner coming from your dog. That's all right.
1: <laughs> That's right. The call and response. But uh, here's Mahalia Jackson. This is from the Decca Sessions in the 1930s. God's going to separate the wheat from the tares.
0: beat from the tear didn't he say
1: was from Mahalia Jackson's 1937 very brief run on Decca Records, working with the great A and R man J uh, Mayo Inc. Williams, um, and that was "God's Going to Separate the Wheat from the Tares." And this this whole um, Pentecostal—I don't want to say versus Baptist—but there was definitely a rivalry between the the more mainline African American religions, the Baptists, the Methodists, the A.M.E., and and the Pentecostals, and you know the more I've learned about this in the process of doing this show and the Holy Roll series with Garrett Cash in particular, there was some real thought and effort going into this on the part of, I don't know if it was the leaders of the Baptist church, but the musical leaders, some of the musical leaders of the Black Baptist church realized they had to compete musically with the Pentecostals because, you know, you had people like Sister Rosetta Tharp or Arizona Drains performing in a church down the street. You're going to lose a lot of walk-up traffic (laughs) to those guys. And the sort of jubilee respectability movement in the 19th century had reached a point where it kind of lost some of its initial energy. There wasn't any more novelty in seeing – You know, I mean, what was so powerful in the aftermath of the Civil War of seeing African-Americans standing tall and performing with grace and performing not only African-American spirituals, but, you know, selections from uh, the Western classical playbook. And I I, I don't know, it's just this massive moment and people like Thomas A. Dorsey and Mahalia Jackson were – I don't want to say stealing the fire like Prometheus, but they were taking some of that zest and charge from the Pentecostal service and bringing it into the into the Baptist thing and the other factor though the other ingredient in this recipe is that Mahalia Jackson grew up listening to Bessie Smith. She's a massive Bessie Smith fan. How did that impact her music and and what do you? Is it even possible to disentangle what she got from the Pentecostals, what she got from the Baptists, and what she got from Bessie Smith?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I I think it is, actually. I mean, one thing about Mahalia Jackson that really came through in um, um, my research is that she really had big ears, by which I mean that she... Really listened carefully and took in sound and had a, a real keen attentiveness to sound. So I think she could listen to the uh, go to the Pentecostal church and um, think about the way they sang, the way they perform, the kinds of um, vocal inflections that she could draw from there. Um, but she also listened to records a lot and had kind of a phonographic education. So she listened to opera singers. She talked about listening to to, to Grace Moore and, and Lawrence Tibbet, who were white um, metropolitan opera singers. She listened to Roland Hayes and Paul Robeson and Marian Anderson on uh, recordings as well, too, and really studied them, she said, for, to, to get diction and breathing uh, uh, a technique and that sort of thing. But, of course, she said her main teacher was – Bessie Smith, and she really describes listening to one record in particular, Careless Love Blues, a 1925 recording by um by Bessie Smith and just listening over and over and over again. And it's not unlike a lot of musicians. Um you hear other gospel musicians talking about listening to records to kind of master the nuances of 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 admired singers or jazz musicians or even, you know, rock and roll musicians wearing out their copy of Johnny Be Good. Um, but she listened carefully to that record um, and she talked about from Bessie Smith getting the tone, just the kind of the kind of quality of the sound of her voice, and it kind of, and I hear that a lot when on her kind of sustained notes um, and use of vibrato and those sorts of things um, on on her recordings. Um, she also talked about getting um, influences from unexpected places, from street vendors, from listening to preachers, um, uh, to listening to people who she lived right near the Mississippi River, so going to the docks and hearing dock workers um, sing, so she really was an eclectic um, singer, and I think that's one thing that made her voice certainly distinctive at the time, her voice and her performance style distinctive uh, at the time. and made her receptive both to Pentecostal listeners, but also to Baptist church listeners as well, too.
1: And I've, I've mentioned Thomas A. Dorsey, and we've done a whole episode on him and talked a little bit about how Mahalia was one of several front people that and singers that he partnered with to, to popularize his music. So I kind of want to skip... Over that a little bit and talk about her brief relationship with decca and, and mayo inc williams and why did she only cut so few sides and 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 walk away i mean it was very rare for african-american artists to get an opportunity to record in 1937 you know in the aftermath of the, the depression still going on but the record industry had collapsed between 29 and 32. what didn't work with her in ink <laughs>
2: I think it was less a matter of her and Ink Williams than it was that, you know, the records didn't sell. And I think it's important, you know, for context to um, remember that, you know, know, Black religious recordings weren't exactly – Uh, an an expected enterprise at the time, the way they were to become. Now, there had been earlier recordings by gospel quartets that go back to the the 20s. The Pace Jubilee Singers were a Baptist group uh, um, led by Hattie Parker. They were recording in the late 20s. Um, Sister Rosetta Tharpe did have some um, in the later 30s. Uh, had some uh, recordings that sold well, but she was also blending it with jazz singing and Lucky Millinder's singing with Lucky Millinder's band. But I think that the kind of just um, basic kind of uh, church singing, black church singing on record was not really uh, known quite yet. So in some ways she was ahead of her time, so ahead of her time that after she made those recordings in 1937, just those four sides, she didn't record again for another 9 years so think about that for a second that we have Mahalia Jackson on on record in 1937 and between 1937 and 1946 we have no record of her voice it's kind of tantalizing to think about what she sounded like in that near decade um near decade of time but i think it was also mahalia jackson's um, I think Williams invited her to, say, to, to sing blues and said, you know what, these records didn't sell, but we love your voice. Why don't you sing some blues? And she refused um, to do that. So I think there was a kind of, you know, honestly, a kind of expectation that black church singers or black singers would cross over. If they crossed over, they would cross over to blues and rhythm and blues. Um, she didn't do that. Um uh, later on, she sang at the Newport Jazz Festival, but it really wasn't until the later 40s, when Move On Up A Little Higher broke, that that really persuaded gospel singers that um, that that they can sing like they said. the Haley Jackson said that you could sing like you sing in the church, put it on record, and people will actually buy it. So it took a little time for uh, that to become a reality.
1: And that's a perfect setup for our next song, which is Mahalia Jackson's massive hit on Apollo Records, Move On Up A Little Higher. And that was Mahalia Jackson's Move On Up A Little Higher, a million-selling record in the late 1940s. I mean, massive, massive, massive hit from a small label Apollo Records. And yeah, like what you're saying about Mahalia not recording between 1937 and, and, the, and 1946, it's just add another – Musical history grievance to my list. You know, we don't get Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie perfecting bebop. We we barely get to hear Charlie Christian before he passes away. You know, we don't hear Bill Monroe formulating bluegrass. We just get these things emerging fully formed. And Mahalia is kind of the same way. She she we hear a tiny tease of of sort of an embryonic Mahalia, and then boom, she's there fully formed and massively successful. How on earth did a record on Apollo Records, I mean Ike and Best Berman's boutique label coming out of New York. How did they move that many units?
2: Well, they really struggled to. I think they were they were blindsided by the success of the record. Um, Hilly Jackson described going down and picking up boxes of records herself to help distribute them uh, on classic. the outside. Yeah, and 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 you know, I think that. You know, that I mean they I mean it was a successful label, um of Apollo Records, but um certainly it became in some ways the house that Mahalia built um because of that uh because of that record. Um and the success of that record and her subsequent records for um for Apollo also laid the foundation for a larger label like Columbia Records getting interested. And uh, and eventually stealing her away from um, stealing her away from Apollo.
1: And I need to backtrack a little bit. I couldn't resist when you introduced the song to jump ahead, but there were some events, and there was a particular promoter that she worked with in New York City that possibly played a role in bringing her to the attention of Apollo Records. Who was Johnny Myers, and how was he promoting artists like Mahalia and Rosetta Tharp? and how did that build their momentum in in the eastern cities of the U.S.
2: Well, Johnny Myers is a really interesting and kind of shadowy figure. He was an African American promoter, um, and he was particularly and uniquely interested in black religious music. So he, he's also a reminder of how um, musical traditions, in some ways, in order for us to study musical traditions and, and musical styles um, uh, that precede us, we have to rely on recordings. Um, so, as you mentioned before, sometimes the absence of those recordings are frustrating to people who write history because we feel like we need to know what the music sounded like. Um, but Myers' work in promoting these mega gospel um, programs um, is a reminder of how much gospel was predicated on live performance um so he was putting on these enormous shows um primarily in in Harlem but also in Brooklyn and Queens all around the in, in in New Jersey all around the New York metropolitan area um and he, he would have these huge crowds but he brought in Mahalia Jackson, and she was just an enormous hit. So in some ways, he's responsible for introducing Mahalia Jackson to the New York region, which is how Apollo Records and various other people encountered her, by, by singing by singing at these Johnny uh, Myers programs, which are often broadcast on the radio as well, too. So he is in some ways the prototype of the gospel promoter, um that became um um more popular um more popular later um, um with shows at Madison Square Garden and Carnegie Hall and those sorts of things, so he was doing that uptown in Harlem, but that was a really important phase of her career because it was right after her record broke. Um, and he kind of um, broadened her uh, um, her visibility beyond Chicago and to the important New York area where the music industry was focused.
1: And relatively quickly, she's working with a different promoter, Joe Bostick, and and is featured on the stage of Carnegie Hall, which was a monumental event. I mean, Carnegie Hall has this totemic cultural power in New York. Explain a little bit about that, how that happened and what kind of impact it had.
2: Well, Bostick was actually a protege of Johnny Myers. So he was learning, he got the idea from Johnny Myers, like, wow, gospel could – could sell and people will show up if we can do this up in Harlem maybe we can do this downtown at Carnegie Hall. So he kind of um, broke away from um, Johnny Myers and, and put on a concert at Carnegie Hall that was a huge deal for Mahalia Jackson too. Um, She was very nervous. Uh, She listened to classical. I mean, New Orleans is a town where classical music just kind of circulates and opera singing circulates in in unexpected places. So she knew some of the figures who had sung at Carnegie Hall. So she was nervous and felt, you know, what am I doing here and that sort of thing. um, but was enormously successful, and Bostic played a key role in presenting her in some of those major uh, major New York, uh, New York venues. And that was an opportunity, one of the first opportunities for white audiences to hear her in person as well, too.
1: And let's go ahead and take a sponsor break, and when we come back, I want to talk about the great W. Herbert Brewster, who wrote move on up a little higher, and also, you know, wrote uh, massive hits for uh, the Ward Singers and others. And I wanna talk about the Apollo Records relationship to black songwriters and publishing rights.
3: Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price.
1: So W. Herbert Brewster's kind of the missing ingredient here. The, the songwriter of Move On Up a Little Higher, he also wrote Surely God is Able, which does pretty close to the same numbers in 1950 for the Ward Singers. And he's part of a whole generation, you know, kind of following the wake of uh, Thomas A. Dorsey and others that are writing new gospel songs in the African-American church tradition. But what was Bess Berman's practice like vis-a-vis... Publishing, especially those written by active American African American songwriters like Thomas A. Dorsey, who are alive now. I mean, it seems like Mahalia Jackson's name found its way onto a lot of songwriting credits on Apollo Records that probably it shouldn't have.
2: Well, it's 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 a really interesting question, and it's complicated. In some ways, it's simple; in some ways, it's complicated. I think that it's the the, the practice of not um, reliably um, uh, paying black gospel songwriters is um, grounded in the belief that black culture somehow kind of is its own generator, in a sense that that black religious song just kind of comes from the ether and just kind of emerges from a people these kinds of ways in which black music is is written about that is in some ways celebratory you know the idea that um these musical traditions come out of the black experience come out of um um black vernacular traditions are are generated by black culture um which, in some ways, is a is a is a positive thing to celebrate, but it also obscures the fact that sometimes music is actually written by people. Um, so a lot of songs that were sometimes written by actual um, songwriters were the label would put they would put traditional um as if it was a spiritual, for instance. Spirituals are kind of more anonymously um written, but gospel songs are not. They have actual songwriters. So um there was a tendency to have um best Berman would sometimes put Mahalia Jackson's name instead of paying them. Now what we don't know is if there was some deal between Berman and Jackson where because literally um you know dozens of songs um, that Mahaley Jackson's name was Words and Music by Mahaley Jackson that we know who they were actually uh, written by. Um, so it's, that's, that's one of the things I would love to learn more about, whether, and I don't know if we ever will, maybe it went to Berman and Jackson's grave with them, um, but how they, how they thought through kind of making those decisions. But there is that, again, that tendency for Black songwriters to be obscured, especially gospel songwriters um to be obscured and i think that's an important thing to emphasize is how important these songwriters were in producing material for these singers um, that this new this new style of gospel song pioneered by thomas dorsey but also even earlier by people like charles henry pace um, who was in chicago and later moved to pittsburgh um, brewster and others um, Think it's important to kind of acknowledge Lucy Campbell was another person, to acknowledge these people as being a, 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 a cornerstone of the modern gospel movement.
1: Absolutely. And this tendency to glide over the contributions of individual African-American songwriters continues into the work of the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin in the 60s. I can remember Bobby Womack calling Keith Richards on the carpet for something that Mick Jagger had said about how you know we would come to America and then do these old you know dig up these old black songs and do these old traditional blues numbers and he's like you know M I'm younger than you are <laughs> like I'm right I'm sitting right here I wrote this song you know and 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 you you know they, they gave him his songwriting credits legally and everything which Led Zeppelin was infamous for not doing but yeah like you said this tendency to to treat all black cultural production is in some way communal, and therefore, private property rights or intellectual property rights don't need to be respected. It's fascinating I stuff. Think it all, yeah. Go ahead. I think it all pertains to black
2: voices too. I mean, I think you know, um, you know, you think about the sound on Stones records or uh, other records of black women's voices. Um, you know, Joe Cocker's you know, version of uh get by with a little help with my friends. I mean, the women's voices on that record, the black women's voices are as prominent or in as much a part of the record as Cocker and they're unacknowledged on the record. So just the, the that other kind of presence, which is not a songwriting presence, but it's a sonic presence, um, that is is, is so constitutive of the sound of that rock era um that doesn't get um that doesn't get acknowledged marine man's book black diamond queens talks about this in a really interesting way but um but that's another way in which the kind of influence and the impact on the music is obscured
1: absolutely and that, that's a huge point like in the 70s it seemed like you know after leanne russell and george harrison got so big it seemed like every touring rock act had two essentially anonymous black girl singers on the stage. And, and this continues all the way up into the talking heads. I mean, the talking heads you know, made a point of introducing them by name and everything, but it just became a trope that people were you know, kind of accustomed to taking for granted. But I want to move on because you do some really fascinating analysis of the types of music in her Apollo era. And we, we in our previous episode, which is kind of an introduction to Mahalia, we talked about her Columbia period. So I was really kind of happy that you really zero in on the Apollo era. And but you also talk about, you know, it's it's ironic, Mahalia Jackson, like, I think the, the first thing I learned about Mahalia was she was the only Black artist in my parents' record collection. And the second hmm. thing I learned about her was that she um, only sang religious songs. Like, I, I hadn't even heard any of the music. I, I just knew that she only sang religious songs. And yet, you point out that certain songs, like this next one we're about to play, are not really they're almost they are as much pop as they are religious and this is Mahalia Jackson's I walked into the garden and when we come back you can explain the concept of the religious pop song I was I Walked Into the Garden by Mahalia Jackson. And this this is one of these artifacts from this early 50s era, the Mitch Miller era, the How Much Is That Doggy in the Window era, the Goodnight Irene and the Weavers era. But Joe Stafford and Gordon McRae had had this song Whispering Hope on Capitol Records. I want to say in 1949, That was this massive, massive hit. And it's one of these hits that record men Looking back, and they were pretty much exclusively record men, except Bess Berman, I guess, wasn't. So, record men and record women looked at this record and said, "This is a big deal. This is a trend. Let's get on that." And and you know, for, for Mahalia's first six sections with Apollo, there's no material like that that she's she's doing. Baptist hymn. She's doing traditional African-American spiritual. She's doing songs by this new generation of African-American gospel songwriters, but she's not doing anything you would call religious pop. But then in the final eight, that becomes not a dominant trend, but at least as big as any of the other ingredients. What happened there and what was Mahalia's relationship to this material? I mean, she kind of vocally complained about it sometimes later on when she was at Columbia, but did she not see the same dichotomy between this and say doing blues or R and B
2: That's a really interesting question. I hadn't thought about it that way that um how she distinguished between um sacred and secular music. I mean, it was religious themed music. Um, and she she religious theme was a very loose category for her. She could um kind of make sometimes tortured arguments about what, what material was okay to sing and what material was um was was off limits, um, but I think this gets back to what I said before about um, negotiating audiences. Um, that part of the challenge is that once she got signed by Apollo, and especially once she got signed by Columbia, um, that they're trying to find ways to expand her audience. Um, and kind of from a Black church base to a kind of um, broader mainstream audience. So one way of navigating that was repertory. Um, Now, the historical context is important because this was the Cold War period, um, and the idea of American religiosity was a strong part of American identity um, that distinguished united states from godless communism and the soviet union so there is this explosion in the 19 in the late 40s and early 50s of songs written trying to capture of of religious pop essentially um uh i believe and songs like that um uh that were incredibly popular so in some ways it's an effort for Mahalia to cross over. On the other hand, it's reflective of the broader climate of uh, of of songs with religious flavor, which may have also created an environment where a religious singer was able to um achieve the kind of um visibility that she was able um she was able to achieve. Now she later on kind of sang other songs for Columbia that were just you know you know what the world needs now is love sweet sweet love on tv she would sing kind of any pop song that had love in it could be could be made to sound religious with leonard feather once the jazz critic said that you know even when she wasn't singing religious material she the way she sang it made it sound like it was religious um, so she was always negotiating that, but I think Apollo Records was trying to both tap the popularity and the appeal of Mahalia Jackson, and also the appeal of this kind of religious pop that could broaden um, broaden the sales of her records.
1: Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up the Cold War thing, because I think when you look at music in this post-war period, it's, it's got to be seen through a lens of a mix of post-war PTSD and Terror at the prospect of nuclear annihilation and communist infiltration/subversion. So Americans were very frightened in this period, and that's why the music went in this gentle, simple direction for several years. At the same time, while this sort of Pentecostal-powered and is bubbling under the surface, and you know it surfaces in Johnny Ray briefly. And then it's going to be, you know, exploding out with with Chuck Berry and Elvis Presley and Little Richard and others later in the decade. But I want to get back to Mahalia's repertoire, and we talked about the religious pop songs that are uh, not roughly a quarter, but it, it's one of four major strands in her repertoire. The other one is these gospel songs that, uh, you know, from Brewster and Dorsey and uh, Charles Tinley and Lucy Campbell, at all, and. There was still some pushback within the church. Occasionally, people would say, you know, this woman's playing jazz in church or she's bringing degrading rhythms into church, which when you really think about that is a really interesting statement, especially coming from an African-American to have internalized the racism of our country so deeply that African rhythms are now degrading rhythms that shouldn't be welcome in the church. How big of an issue was that for her into the 40s and 50s? I think it became
2: less of an issue once she became famous, quite honestly. Um, and when I say famous, you know, um, Malcolm X once said that Mahalia Jackson was the first African American that black people themselves made famous. In other words, the idea of fame is often associated, you cross over, and once White audiences accept you, you're famous, but she was already famous when she crossed over because black america um and her black church priests had had embraced her so um with such wild enthusiasm um. So I think that what was the issue with Mahalia Jackson when she first started singing in Chicago, most people say, is less the repertory because she was singing stuff straight out of Gospel Pearls, which was a kind of iconic um, um, songbook um, for for Baptists. A lot of hymns came out of that. Um, Then it was her performance style um, that people talked about how her physical performance style that... Um, that she was, there was a kind of almost. Uh, a sexuality to her, her manner of performance, the way she moved. She didn't just stand with two feet in place in her body stationary and sing, sing hymns that she would throw her entire body into it. And so I think that was kind of tantalizing, um, um, but also kind of titillating in a, in a, in a more uncomfortable way for some, for some church audiences um, in terms of, you know, you know, hiking up her, her, her robe when she sang and those sorts of things. So she, it's interesting, I think, repertory-wise, other than the stuff she did for radio and 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 the kind of religious pop, she was pretty, she, she really liked singing hymns and gospel songs. Um, but her performance style, I think, really, um, her manner of performance, which again goes back to the Pentecostal influence, is what really kind of raised eyebrows.
1: No doubt about that. And the next thing I want to hear um, is uh, it's something that's called Childhood Church Memories uh, in most recording presentations of it. But it's her singing, Father, I Stretch My Hands to Thee, and uh, introducing and discussing it, how she sang it in church and how they treated these traditional Baptist hymns in church. And it was recorded by a guy named William Bill Russell. And when we come back, I want you to introduce Bill Russell. Who was he? And also talk about Mahalia's relationship to these Isaac Watts hymns and how they sang. This is when Mahalia I'm sharing I'm her childhood old. church memories.
2: The name of the church was Mount Moriah Baptist Church. Well, it was a small church, very small, but it was spiritual. The type of people that had went to that church, there wasn't ashamed shame to sing a song. There wasn't a shame to testify to the glory of God. And you know, You could get such a warm feeling there. Everybody felt welcome. Little old church set on the ground. Didn't even have a basement. Wasn't a great big church here
1: like New York.
0: Father, I stretch my hand to thee.
1: And that was Mahalia Jackson explaining to Bill Russell uh, how she sang traditional hymns like Father, I stretch my hands to thee uh, in church when she was growing up. Explain who Bill Russell was. Like, How did an aspiring avant-garde composer come to be one of the most important chroniclers of Mahalia Jackson's life?
2: Well, it's a really – he's such an interesting figure, and in between kind of his desire to be – uh, a, a composer, and he 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 had connections. He studied with Arnold Schoenberg at UCLA, and he collaborated with John Cage, and was writing quite experimental music, trying to incorporate jazz, which was an interest of his, into the music. Um, but really, what Russell's claim to fame is, is that he was the preeminent expert on New Orleans jazz and particularly early New Orleans jazz Um, and uh, he contributed to a, a collection called Jasmine which was one of the first kind of studies of of jazz wrote the, the section on New Orleans jazz. So he was considered this guru um, who knew all about and eventually knew personally a lot of these early New Orleans jazz musicians. So he was obsessed with kind of um, um, yeah, Bunk Johnson, for instance, the trumpeter. He followed around and kind of helped resuscitate his career and kind of recorded him later in life after he had kind of Uh, Dropped off the radar screen a little bit. So within the jazz world, Bill Russell was kind of this luminary. Um, What's interesting is that he heard Mahalia Jackson on the radio at a Johnny Myers show um, and fell in love with her voice. Um, Part of it may have been the fact that she uh, obviously her voice, but also the fact that she herself was a New Orleanian. Um, so that's another connection he may have had to, um, to her, but eventually he moved to Chicago and in Chicago, he tracked down Mahalia Jackson and started going to her gospel programs and eventually became essentially a personal assistant. And what's funny is that Jackson had no idea who he was, you know, so other people knew, oh my goodness, the, you know, the, the New Orleans jazz expert, Bill Russell, But she just knew him as Bill, the guy she told to, you know, fix her pipes and, you know, change light bulbs (laughs) and water her plants and make her posters and and put up posters and and make her cue cards for the studio. Um, And he has a remarkable record. He basically kept a journal for three years, a day by day journal of um, working with um Mahalia Jackson of everything he did with her so it's an it's one of the most remarkable records of any musician you'll you'll ever find because it's so detailed he's describing all these church programs but he also i think important role for him is that he helped facilitate her crossover from Apollo to Columbia because he could see new George Avakian and Mitch Miller and the the, the producers at at at, uh, at Columbia, so he can kind of speak their language, but he also knew Mahalia, so he could speak to her as well and helped rehearse with her, recorded her um, uh, rehearsals, which is an incredible document as well that's in the archives. Um, so he was actually a really unsung but incredibly important figure in helping Mahalia Jackson navigate um, this transition from a small independent label to a kind of to the biggest record company in the world
0: Yeah it was
1: it was really fascinating when he came across you know when, when we come across him in the narrative in your book, I was not expecting the, the connection to the avant-garde nor was I expecting this connection to the whole Trad jazz versus you know bebop controversy which was a big big thing. In, in this period, and 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 people like Russell, perhaps unfairly, sometimes were called moldy figs, et cetera, and seen as enemies of the new music. But it's just fascinating how much everything is connected uh, in this very small world we share. And the last thing I want to talk about is her approach to the music of Isaac Watts, and also this influence of of you know Puritan English songwriters like Isaac Watts on African American. Gospel music, pull some of that apart. Like how big a a part of the mix? What was the work of Isaac Watson? How did a singer like Mahalia Jackson approach this stuff rhythmically? Because you also cross analyze these things in terms of, you know, if if it's got a bounce rhythm or a a gospel feel or a swing feel. And and the songs that came from these hymns, she tended to sing in a what you call a free feel. Explain that. One
2: of the traditions in Baptist churches, Black Baptist churches, although you also encounter encounter them in white primitive Baptist churches as well, too, um, is what's known as lined out hymn singing. So this is a practice that was designed for congregations where musical literacy or literacy period was limited so you'd have a song leader who sang a line and then the group would sing a line back but in this very elaborate um kind of sinuous way uh the kind of fancy musical term is is melismatic which just basically means you sing a lot of notes on each syllable um and this and it had this kind of free feel in the sense of there was no meter there's no beat um but it just kind of and the it's it's amazing to hear because it sounds like the congregation is just kind of oozing forward on these long uh, on these long lines so i think you hear a lot of that practice in mahalia jackson's performances of hymns baptists um often approach singing hymns with this kind of very slow deliberate kind of style where you can kind of hear the meter um uh but but it just feels like it's kind of unfolding in a kind of free you may have heard um when people sing amazing grace they often sing it in that very kind of free style when obama sang amazing grace after the shooting in uh south carolina um there was a he, he sang it in that style too so amazing grace is one of those hymns so these it's interesting that the texts of those um lined out hymns come from these English um, uh, hymn writers like Isaac Watts, these eighteenth century hymn writers, um, but they're adapted in these black Baptist churches in this style that I think shows up in this free Baptist hymn um, approach that which is one of three approaches that I kind of talk about, um, the others being a kind of much more um, faster-tempoed swing feel um, where you have kind of four beats that has this kind of this ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta. She's sometimes referred to it as a kind of bounce feel, um, uh, songs with a bounce um, that she can sing and use a little bit more rhythmic energy. Um, and then a kind of in-between, what I call a gospel feel, um, uh, which involves a kind of back-and-forth between um, Jackson and the accompanist plays a key role where they kind of, there's a division of labor between the singer and the, the accompaniment uh, accompanist um, that this back and forth that I kind of describe as the gospel seesaw. And it's a, but these three the very distinct fields. And I was surprised at how much of her music, um, almost all of her recordings outside of the religious pop songs, kind of fell into those categories. So it's interesting we talk about black gospel, but there is a diversity of approaches even within that uh, within that category during this period of Jackson's career.
1: Absolutely, and I'm glad you brought up the accompaniment because I really want to give a shout out to Mildred Falls, the pianist, and Blind Francis, the organist. And that combination of piano and organ becomes synonymous with gospel music, such that when Ray Charles you know, invents soul slash rewrites gospel songs as R and B hits, pretty blatantly too. We, we, I, I got to mention Ray because you know the conversation we were having earlier about publishing rights. He, he trespassed as much as anybody. But you know, when Bob Dylan goes to Nashville and has Big Blonde on Blonde period, and he at, he has a piano and an organist, it's very clearly a nod and an attempt to draw on this power of gospel music, and then it becomes a staple of early seventies and. 70s hard rock in general how did that particular accompaniment combination come together in the studio for her and was that just a replication of what they had been doing in the churches
2: yeah i, th- I mean false definitely um was her regular accompanist of whenever she she's really a remarkable figure and again one of those people that you wish you knew more uh, uh, about um she was Jackson's accompanist for about 25 years and she fished around for a regular pianist on the early recordings There's a few different pianists until she settles on Falls and Falls is with her um, through the duration of the Apollo period and and a lot of the uh, Columbia period as, as well too so whenever she would go to church events you know, whenever she had to perform, she would just Mildred, let's go, um, and and Falls would be there. Um, for the Columbia recordings, um, she was paired. It's very typical for a pianist and or piano and organ together to be uh to accompany a gospel. Um, uh, performance. The organ's useful because it can sustain tones. So when you're singing in that kind of free feel, you can kind of just hold notes as long as you need to until you um, you move ahead with the uh, with the singer. Um, but I think uh, Columbia tried to capture something. You, you definitely hear that on the Apollo recordings. And this very, you know, they also are singing with backup singers. They're singing with uh, guitarists. There's a saxophone on one. Uh, um a scandalous record in the view of some that's <laughs> right but uh at Columbia they kind of the Falls and Ralph Jones was the was the organist and so they called it the Falls Jones ensemble, which just basically meant Mildred Falls and Ralph Jones, um, but paired with other musicians as well too. So she was really Mildred Falls um a real um Uh, a a, a, a regular component of of Jackson's sound and developed an incredible sensitivity um, to Jackson's kind of improvisatory flights in performance, um, on recordings, and and in live settings.
1: And when you bring up improvisatory, I'm going to improvise a question and kind of surprise you with something I hadn't thrown at you in any of the notes or anything. And that's, I kind of see... Mahalia Jackson and Ella Fitzgerald as sisters, both kind of musical daughters of Bessie Smith, who obviously went in very different directions. You know, one being the queen of gospel, and the other being, um, you know, first one of the queens of swing, and then and then one of the great bebop and, and jazz interpretive singers. Is there any record of Mahalia talking about Ella Fitzgerald other than she sings blues and I don't. What do they think of each other? Do we have any idea? I don't. The only mention of Ella
2: Fitzgerald that I can think of off the top of my head um, that Mahalia Jackson had was they sang on the same program together. The Pittsburgh Courier had a contest um, basically for top singers in all kinds of categories. So blues categories, jazz categories, gospel categories. And then the winners would all perform on a big concert together. Um, so in, in a, this particular year, I can't remember what year it was, I think it was in 1953, actually, in Detroit, where they had the culminating concert. Um, and Jackson sang on that program, and Ella Fitzgerald also sang on that program. And the only thing she said was, according to Bill Russell, who was of course, there documenting everything, um, Russell felt that ella Fitzgerald hadn't sung very well and was not received very well, but Mahalia Jackson was received rapturously, and um, and Jackson just said, well, you know, sometimes they, I think she's something they like singers with big voices, or you know, because Ella Fitzgerald had a much more delicate, she wasn't a belter um, like Mahalia Jackson could be, um, and and um, so she was aware of of. Ella's uh particular voice and I think that's really telling us goes way back to what I was saying before about her attention to sound that she really studied other singers a lot she watched a lot of tv and she loved watching variety shows with singers and she Russell records just her almost just uh um, just kind of her, her, her data entry about the various singers she's hearing. So she was very aware of other singers. So I'm sure she had views on Ella Fitzgerald's voice. Um, uh, I, I don't know if Ella Fitzgerald ever said anything about um, Mahalia Jackson. Sarah Vaughn did um, express that she wanted to have the kind of emotional impact of, of Mahalia Jackson's voice, but not so sure about Ella Fitzgerald.
1: Well, fascinating stuff. And my guest has been Mark Burford, and the book is Mahalia Jackson and the Black Gospel Field. Highly recommended If you like Let It Roll, this is the most Let It Roll book I've come across in years. Mark, thanks so much for writing it, and thanks for coming on the show.
2: Thanks very much, Nate. I appreciate it. Enjoy talking to you.
0: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Roll and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Next week, Nate and new Let It Roll intern Ivan De Haas kick off a new series, Three Kings of Emo Rap, with a look at XXX Tentacion's documentary, Look at Me. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com.